Well, it is March, everyone. We made it through February. It always seems like such a long month, but we have made it. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord, right? Yeah. Yeah, if you, there we go, yes. Spring is, um, it is such a beautiful time of the year. I love it. Spring can also be a very stressful, uh, <laughs> stressful time of the year for those that are graduating. Maybe we have some graduating high school seniors in here, maybe some college students. I remember the spring before I graduated, uh, really the year before I graduated, was really stressful, just full of stress. You know, we were at, you're asking all those questions, am I going to go to college? Am I going to get a job? Am I going to go into the military? If I'm going to college, what college am I going to? And everyone's asking me. Such a stressful time. It was during that time in my life that I heard about the story of Katie Davis, now Katie Davis Majors. Some of you may know her story. If you don't, I want to share it with you this morning. Her story intrigued me because when Katie was a senior in high school, she went on a two-week mission trip to, uh, during, Christ, during her Christmas break to Uganda. She went there for two weeks, and she came back home to Tennessee from this trip. And while the rest of her friends began continuing to plan for college and jobs and internships and all those different things, she felt a call to go back to Uganda. And she considered it, and after praying and thinking and finding counsel, she decided to commit to a year to postpone college and job and follow God's call back to Uganda. She went there, she taught kindergarten at an orphanage, but after that year was up, she again felt the call, except this time the call was, stay. Make this place your home. She had fallen in love with the people there. She had seen the spiritual and physical poverty that they lived in, and she decided to stay. And she chose to make Uganda her home. She's, she started this ministry called um, Amazima Ministries, which helps families have food and jobs, uh, job training and education. And over time, she decided to adopt many of the girls in that orphanage. By, say, by many, I mean 13. She recently married another missionary, and she is still there today. Here's a picture of her and her husband's family. Because she followed the call of God. And her story especially intrigued me when I was a senior in high school because I wondered, how was she able to surrender to Jesus like that? To give up all the comforts of home and all the, the, the likely success of going to college and all this and just go to Uganda. Like, how can I do that in my own life? I think that Katie recognized something that each one of us needs to recognize this morning. And this is our main point this morning. The Christian life is a life of surrender. We're going to see this truth in our passage this morning. Let's dive in. And don't worry, Brent may be gone. We still have three points, though. We still have three points. Number one, Jesus calls us to surrender. In this passage that we just read, Jesus encounters these four men. He encounters the first two fishermen, Simon, later called Peter by Jesus, and then Andrew. They're casting their nets into the sea. Jesus comes to them in verse 19. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He goes on from there, probably with Peter and Andrew in tow behind him. He sees James, and he sees John, and he calls to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And all four men drop what they're doing, literally drop what they're doing, and literally follow after Jesus. Verse 20 says that Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed him. James and John in verse 22 left the boat and their father. You can imagine Zebedee, their father, going, Okay, boys, I guess I'll finish the work. Bye. At least that's what I imagine when I hear that. 
And now this is a story that many of us have heard many times, if you, if you, especially if you grew up in the church. You've heard this story, you learned about it in Sunday school. And so it, the gravity of the decision these men just made, the, the decision these men just made, may kind of be lost on us. So I want us to pause and just think, you know, fishing for us is a hobby. Fishing for them is their livelihood. Fishing is their job. It's how they get food. It's how they have income. It's how they have stability. It's how they have security. It's how they provide for their families. And they just leave it to follow after Jesus. Peter and Andrew literally left their nets in their boat. They didn't take it to a U-Haul, or U-Haul storage unit and stick it in there in case this Jesus thing didn't work out. No, they just left it for whoever came along next. And James and John do the same thing. They leave their nets. They follow Jesus. No backup plan. This is such a daring decision with gigantic consequences. You might even call it a crazy decision. You can imagine if you came into work tomorrow and your coworker came up to you and said, hey, I'm quitting my job. I'm not even selling my house. I'm just leaving it. I'm going to go follow this guy I met this weekend. You'd be like, wait, what? And you'd, you'd be like, wait, where are you going? And who is this guy? And what's your plan? And you're not selling your house. And you might even try to talk your friend out of it. We might look at the decision they're making and think, they are crazy. Why then do they do it? What makes this decision so clear for them? I'll tell you the answer. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Just before this passage, in verse 17, Jesus begins to preach. He actually begins his public ministry. He kind of comes out of the woodwork and starts proclaiming and preaching. And what he proclaims is this. He says, repent. This is verse 17. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The NIV translation of the Bible says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. If you don't know what repent means, it means turn back to God. Jesus is saying, turn back to God because, because God has come. His kingdom has come. God is near. And in fact, although the disciples didn't understand it totally at that moment, God is standing in front of you. Like I said, Peter and Andrew did not understand everything about Jesus at the time. If you read through the Gospels, he reveals his identity over time. They did, though, understand something incredible. They understood that Jesus was unlike any other person they had, they, they had or would ever encounter. And we know that because this encounter in Matthew chapter 4 is actually not their first encounter with Jesus. We think, it is it's the, we think it is because it's the first encounter in the Gospel of Matthew, but if we go over to the book of John... John chapter 1, we see Andrew and Peter encounter Jesus. Andrew is actually a disciple of John the Baptist. Jesus comes by, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And Andrew follows Jesus. But before he follows Jesus, he goes and he gets his brother Peter and says this beautiful thing. In verse 22, he says, Peter, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Savior. We must follow him. Let's go. And so they do. They go and they follow him for about a year. And then for some reason that we do not know, they return to fishing. The point is this. When Jesus comes to them by the Sea of Galilee, they are already following Jesus. They are already, they, they are already sold out for Jesus. They already know him. This, so when he, they follow him in Matthew chapter 4, they are not professing their faith. This is not their trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins. No, this is their surrender to Jesus' calling on their lives. Jesus is not asking them to believe and trust in him. They already do. 
He's calling them to surrender their lives to his will, to his plan. And they do. Now, Jesus calls us to surrender, too. Like I said, this Christian life is all about surrender. Think about it. Let me prove this to you. Our life is all about surrender to Jesus. We surrender every day. We surrender when we choose to wake up or before we go to bed, prioritize reading scripture and praying, giving up our time. That's surrender. You're surrendering right now by being here and worshiping with the body and being encouraged by the body of Christ. We surrender when we choose to bring Jesus into our conversations with our neighbors. We surrender when we choose to fight to remove certain sins from our lives. Our Christian life even begins with surrender when we come before God and we say, God, I cannot save myself. I give up trying. I trust in you. Christian life is one of surrender, not just in the big decisions, but in the little ones. But the four fishermen in our passage this morning, they they surrender in a big way. And how do they surrender? They surrender immediately. This brings us to point number two. Our surrender should be quick. Julie and I have a dog. His name is Frank. We love him to death. He is one of the greatest blessings in our life. He is the most stubborn dog in the world, though. He is loving but stubborn. And uh, whenever Julie and I have to leave in the morning, we have to put him in his crate. Otherwise, he will destroy our home. And so we used to bait him with, uh, well, he does not want to go in his crate. We used to bait him with little dog treats. We'd drop one in there, and he'd go in. The thing now is he just doesn't want to go in his crate. And so he's really stubborn. And I'll say, Frank, like, imagine he's here. The crate's here. I'll say, Frank, crate. And he'll just look at me. And he'll look at the crate. He'll look at me, and he'll look at the crate, and then he'll just take off running into the other room. And what ensues is Julie and I running around trying to catch him for like five minutes, and we're late for work, and we're stressed, and we're probably shouting a little too loud. Our neighbor probably hears us because we're just trying to get the dog in the crate. And what eventually happens is we get him by the collar. We gently lead him into his crate, and even when you put him in the crate, you have to slam. You have to be quick to shut the door because he'll run right back out. Our surrender to Jesus shouldn't go down like Frank's surrender to my command to go into his crate. Our surrender should be quick, church. Surrender, in fact, should be our only response when he calls. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4. Verse 20 says that Peter and Andrew immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. No hesitation. Verse 22 says that James and John also immediately left their boat and followed Jesus. Surrender is their immediate response. It's quick. And it should be ours as well. A few weeks ago, the student ministry meets on Wednesday nights. We were talking about this passage, and I said, imagine this. Imagine that Jesus came into your classroom, whether you're at home or you're at school. Jesus comes into your classroom. He says, follow me. And you get up, leave your bag there, and walk out the door with him. That's how immediate this passage is. That's how immediate these fishermen surrender to Jesus. And that's how immediate our surrender should be. Why then do we so often not surrender immediately or at all? Why do we so often struggle to surrender our lives to Jesus? Many of us who are Christians know what we're to do. Why do we struggle? Why do we neglect our quiet times of devotion to God? Why do we go day after day without sharing the gospel with that person who is in dire need of it? Why do we have a bucket list that is overflowing, so many things that we can't even possibly do them, but, our, but we have a spiritual agenda that is lacking or non-existent. 
I think about these four men, and the thing is, I don't think they were very different from us. Peter and Andrew could have dreamed of becoming the best fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They could have dreamed of having the, 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 being the renowned fishermen of Galilee. They could have dreamed of having their own fish trading business. Fish trading business. I know what it would have been called. Simon Seafood. That's what it would have been called. I don't think it's a leap to say that they hope to marry and have a family. These were ordinary men. Even so, they lay all these things, hopes, dreams, desires, future plans. When Jesus calls them, they're all put aside, and they go. How can they do what we struggle to do seemingly so easily? To understand, I think we need to go back to that short but amazing statement in John chapter 1, where Andrew comes to his brother, Peter, and he says, Peter, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Savior. See, we can say that as well. We can say we have found our Savior. We have found God, or rather, God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. God has come to us. The Savior has come. And he has made a way for our salvation through the blood of his Son on the cross. And he has removed our sin. He has met our greatest need. Now, we know all of that, and the four fishermen in our passage knew this. They didn't know all the details. They, they struggled to understand, if you read through the Gospels, all that Jesus was going to do. But here's what they did know. They did know, we have found the Messiah. We have found the one sent by God to save his people. These fishermen, along with the rest of Israel, they would have been anticipating this. For hundreds of years, they would have been waiting for God's Savior to come. And now they've got him. They see him. They know it's him. And so they know that even if they just have Jesus, they're okay. If everything else is stripped away from their life, but they are with him, they're okay because he will save us. He will meet our greatest needs. And that is why they were able to put aside their dreams and hopes and desires. That is why they were able to follow God's call quickly, because as long as they're with him, they've got everything they need. It's my opinion from my personal experience that we— do not surrender our lives to Jesus most often because we simply fail to recognize and remember what we have received in Jesus. In chapter 13 of his gospel, Matthew records two little parables that Jesus said, beginning in verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like, is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Then, verse 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, in both of these stories, something is found that is worth far more than everything the person has. Tim Keller does a fantastic job in one of his sermons of putting um, these two little parables into our context. He talks about the field parable. He says, imagine you discovered a field for sale. We're in Batesville, Arkansas. There are fields all around us, Southside, Cave City, wherever you're at. We have fields all around us. Imagine you discovered this field, and imagine that only you knew that underneath that field there was an oil well worth millions, we'll say billions of dollars. Only you know. And Tim Keller asked the question, would you not sell, and here's the, here's the catch, the cost of the field is equal to the worth of everything you have. And Tim Keller asked the question, he says, would you not go and sell everything you have and buy that field? Yes, we would. 
Tim Keller's like, of course we would. We might have a rough couple of weeks, but then once that money starts rolling in, we're good. Imagine what you could do. Millions and billions of dollars. In the next parable, something similar happens. Verse 45, a merchant gives up everything he has because he finds one pearl worth more than everything he has. Church, the treasure hidden in the field, the pearl, those are Jesus. The field and the pearl are our salvation. It's the kingdom of God. We have found the hidden treasure. We have found the pearl of great value. We have found the answer to our greatest need. We have to remember, church, that at the beginning of time, God created us, and he created us good in his image. And he blessed us with his presence. He gave us everything we needed. There was no pain, no suffering, no toil, no anything. And he said, follow me and glorify me. But instead, we sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. They chose to rebel against God, against his good wishes. And as a result, we were cursed with sin. We were separated from God because we became imperfect and sinful, and God is perfect and sinless, and those two things can't coexist. We were, as Ephesians 2 says, dead in our sins. We were dead people walking. If you want an image, it's like we were standing on the platform with the noose around our neck, waiting for death, the executioner, to pull the platform out from under us. But God, rich in mercy and grace, desired that we not perish. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 21, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Basically, Jesus took our sin and became our righteousness. He reconciled us to God. He took the rope that was around our neck, which we deserve because of our sin, our transgression against God. He took it off our neck, and he stepped into our place and put the noose around his neck and died our death. Amen. Our punishment for our sin became his punishment while his innocence became ours before God. Thank you, God. Our greatest need has been met through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is through faith in Jesus that we are welcomed back into the kingdom. So that is the hidden treasure in the field. That is the pearl of great value. That is the reason these four fishermen leave everything and go follow Jesus. That is the reason Katie went to Uganda, and that is the reason we strive to surrender to God every day of our life. We recognize our Messiah, our Savior, the treasure, the pearl in front of us. Have you recognized the Messiah? Have you received your, the forgiveness of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ? If so, does your life reflect that you've received it? Or are you still refusing to surrender parts of your life? If we learn one thing from these four fishermen, we learn that when Jesus calls, we should go. Our surrender should be quick. So let me ask you, is God calling you to something? You might say no. And if that, if you, if that is your answer, I have to lovingly correct you and say you're wrong. God is always calling you to something. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There is always work for the disciples of Jesus. God is always calling us to people, to places, to tasks. 
And so if your answer to my question is either no or I don't know, I think it's time to practice some listening. And I'm going to talk more about that at the end. For now, let's move on to my third and last point. Number three, surrender leads us to glorify God. Learning is to surrender is so crucial because it is when we follow God that we glorify God. And as we glorify God, people see us glorifying God, and they ask, why are you glorifying God? And then they start glorifying God, and it spreads. Jesus calls the fishermen to follow him, and he makes them a promise. He says, I will make you fishers of men. It's a funny little play on words, but he says, what is Jesus doing with that? He's promising them, hey, follow me, and I will do more through you than you can imagine. Surrender yourself, and I will do more through you than you can possibly imagine. Jesus is not promising them that if they cast their nets into the sea, they're going to start pulling men out of the water. That'd be weird. No, he's saying, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, fishers of souls. I will work through you in ways you cannot imagine. And there is no greater calling church than that. And surprise, it's not just my calling, it's all of our callings. But if we're going to do it, we must surrender. These fishermen only became incredible disciples after they surrendered all. And as I was preparing this message, I started wondering, you know what happened to these men? I think it's something we don't talk about a lot. We know that Peter got off to a rough start. He denied Jesus right before his crucifixion. But if you go into the book of Acts, you see Peter, he becomes the great evangelist. And he preaches sermon after sermon, one of which brings 3,000 people at one time to follow Jesus. God started doing some incredible things through him in the book of Acts. And the church is built up. And he goes on from there. He continues to preach. He goes with Paul, not with Paul, but he, he builds the church in Ephesus, or not in Ephesus, in Rome, excuse me, with Paul. He writes first and second Peter, and at the end of his life, he's martyred on a cross upside down because he doesn't want to be killed the same way his Lord was. We don't know as much about Andrew as we do about Peter. We do know, though, that he was martyred by the Romans in Greece on an X-shaped cross. We know that James became a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. You can read about him in the book of Acts. But in the end, in Acts chapter 12, he was martyred by the Romans, put to death by the sword. And you might be like, wait, all these guys were killed? Yes, because the Romans said there was one king, Caesar. And all these men were going around saying, no, Caesar is not king. Jesus is king. So their martyrdom reflects nothing but the fact that they were boldly proclaiming Christ wherever they went. John was not martyred. He led the church in Ephesus for much of his life. He wrote his gospel account, Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, and three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, all of which are in our Bible. John died of old age in exile at Ephesus. Church, we must learn to surrender not just because four men did 2,000 years ago, but because their surrender led to God's glory. Surrender leads us to glorify God, and is that not our desire? Is that not why we gather here? Is that not why we believe in Jesus, to glorify God? The Christian life is a life of surrender. Now, how can you apply this message to your life? How can you learn to surrender? Well, first, I just want to say it should not be too great a surprise for us when we reflect and realize, okay, you know what? I'm not surrendering my life to Jesus. We are sinful creatures. We await, our bodies await for Christ to come again and restore us at that time. In the meantime, our flesh wars against, wars against what God wants. So we should not be surprised when we realize that we have not followed God perfectly. 
So the first step to learn to surrender is to, one, repent. Number one, repent. Go to God. And repentance is not going to God and saying, oh, God, I'm a sinner, I'm terrible, ah, and just being down. It's saying, God, I am a sinner, but God, you have forgiven my sin on the cross. It's acknowledging your sin and acknowledging the forgiveness of it. Being broken by it, but then finding joy in your forgiveness. So repent. Number two, remind yourself of the pearl that you have received. John Piper writes in his book, Desiring God, he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We have to recognize that we have received the greatest gift imaginable. And that's hard because we live in a place where there are many great things around us, and so it can be hard to think of the the forgiveness of our sins is the greatest thing ever received but if we look at what happens if we do not have this gift and what happens when we do have it it is obviously the greatest gift so remember the pearl and be satisfied in that because when you're satisfied in that you glorify god so repent remind yourself of the pearl and number three ask go to god in prayer and say where are you calling me to who are you calling me to to what are you calling me to Make this request a regular part of your daily prayers. I try to pray something like this every morning because I know that when I get up, even before I leave my house, there is work for me to do. There are things laid out for me that I don't know about. And I pray, God, help me see. Help me follow your call today. So repent, remind yourself of the pearl, ask, and last, listen. I'm convinced that one of the major reasons we do not hear God's call or wonder where we're supposed to, what we're supposed to do with our life is because we're not listening. We're drowning it out with busyness in our own plans. And if that's you, I would encourage you, go back and listen to the sermon series we just finished, Rhythms. Brent did a fantastic job laying out rhythms that can give us space to listen for God in our lives. In the end, we need to be like the disciples. We need to be like Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 6 where he says, Here I am. Send me. We need to acknowledge to God that nothing is off the table in our lives. Here I am. Send me. And because these men are fishermen, I just want to say, your work is where you can declare this. We all have jobs in here, most of us. Some of us may be a little too young. At your job, say, here I am, Lord. Send me. Not out loud at your job. They might think you're kind of weird. But Jesus calls the fish, like, but at your job, walk into your job with a purpose of, Lord, send me in this place. Jesus calls the fishermen to follow him, and they do so literally. They leave their job. That's not what Jesus, I'm not, that's not what Jesus is getting to us. He's not saying leave your job. But he's saying take your daily labor and make it kingdom work. Bring, like, join the two together. Bring fishing for souls into your daily labor. God, enjoy, God gave you work, and it's good. But it's meant to be kingdom work as well. You might ask, am I called to share the gospel with my employees, my coworkers, my, my boss, if the opportunity presents itself? Yes. The answer is yes. A word of advice, though, um, in bringing the gospel into your, wherever you work, don't do it on company time. We want good relationships with people, and we don't want to make bosses mad if we're taking away from produ productive time. But I have a professor that always says this, and I, I, I take this to heart. He always says, if you buy someone their lunch, you can share Jesus with them any day of the week. Those people in your work that need to know Jesus, buy them lunch. 
ask them where they're at. So Jesus is not calling us all to drop our jobs, but I don't want you to discount, I don't want you to, uh, to, to discount yourself from the possibility that God is calling you to something big. We should, we should not assume that God is not calling us to something big. Katie Davis, the girl who went to Uganda, she did something that we might call big. That was radical. That's not, I'm glad she did that. That's not for me. Woo, no. But if you go and you listen to interviews with her, you just see she was doing nothing but following the call of God. She was simply open to it. Do not discount yourself from any calling. I once said that I would never be a pastor. I told my parents that. I will never be a pastor. I think God chuckled pretty hard when he said that. The truth is, you might be called to be a missionary. You might be called to be a pastor. You might be called to be an elder. You might be called to quit your job and start a nonprofit. I don't know what your calling is, but don't disqualify yourself from the possibility. Some of you may be called to those things. Most of us, though, I would guess, might be called to make sure your family and neighbors know the gospel, that they know Jesus. You might be called to sit with those who are grieving, with those who are sick, and take care of them. You might be called to adopt or foster. You might be called to give your car to someone who needs one instead of selling it. I really like Katie Major's attitude. I have a quote from her, from her book. She writes, I have learned that I will not change the world. Jesus will do that. I can, however, change the world for one person. I can change the world for 14 little girls and for 400 school children and for a sick and dying grandmother and for a malnourished, neglected, abused five-year-old. And if one person sees the love of Christ in me, it is worth every minute. In fact, it is worth spending my life for. Church, the Christian life is a life of surrender. And as we conclude here, I just want to, if you were here and you were, and you're just thinking, Sam, I, I agree with everything you say. I just struggle to surrender everything. I, st I struggle to surrender this sin, or I struggle to surrender my free time. Like, how do I learn to surrender? Two very practical things you can do in addition to what I've mentioned. I've given you lots of stuff you can do, but two very practical things you can do when you walk out these doors. Number one, observe Lent. If you did not grow up in a church or grew up, grew up in a tradition that had celebrated Lent, Lent is the season in which we prepare our hearts for Easter. Easter is the big celebration we have in just a few weeks. We're preparing our hearts now. And how we do that is we, one of the ways we prepare is by denying ourselves like Christ denied himself on the cross. And so I would encourage you to deny yourself, to surrender something during this, these four, this 40 day, there's 35 days left. Maybe it's surrendering some of your money and giving it away to those who need it, the church, a charity, your neighbor who needs it. Maybe surrendering some of your time and giving it to Jesus in his word because maybe that's where you're at. You're just like, I just don't know. I just don't want to surrender my time to Jesus. Commit to it for Lent. We sent out in our newsletter a free Lenten devotional. You can go back to the newsletter, find the link. It's on there. Plug into that for this time. Maybe it's surrendering some of your energy and giving it to the church or someone in need, helping your neighbor or committing to being here on Sundays this month. So if you find, like surrendering, I find is like riding a bike. The more you do it, the easier it gets, and the more you enjoy it as you do it. Then I want us all to see something. This is our last little thing. And this is for all of us because we all struggle to surrender. Me, everyone in here. See that Jesus himself surrendered. 
Our sermon series is called The Way of the Cross, and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at encounters Jesus has with people and how they respond as he goes toward the cross. But people, church, the way of the cross is the way of surrender. Out of his great love for his Father and for us, Jesus willingly surrendered to the cross, to death for us. So as Jesus surrendered himself on the cross for you and for, for his, out of obedience to his Father, let us surrender ourselves to others and to God for his glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for your willingness to surrender yourself. Surrender your heavenly throne for a cross. God, we are undeserving of your grace and your mercy, but you have given it to us in mighty ways. Father, I pray that we would live out of that, that we would remember the pearl that we have received, that we have been given the most valuable thing there is. Father, I pray for us now that as we sing this final song and as we walk out of these doors, Lord, that we would begin to surrender. Surrender now with our voices praising you, but also just surrender with our life. I pray that everyone in here would leave this place asking themselves, where do I need to surrender? Jesus, you have surrendered for me, for my sake. How can I surrender for your sake and for the sake of others? Father, be with us and guide us as we ask that question. Lord, we love you and we praise you.